This is 105.9 The Region. There are so many ways of communicating these days, but nothing seems to beat the one-on-one. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Welcome to In Conversation. Thank you for being with us. This show is, in my view, up front, up close, and out of this world. Ten, nine, eight. We have a go for main engine start. Six, five, four, three, two, one. We have booster ignition and liftoff of the Space Shuttle Endeavor, extending the reach of the space station while extending partnerships above the Earth. Well, that countdown, in all probability, was music to Chris Hadfield's ears back in 2001, but it also may have sent a shiver down the spine of the courageous Canadian astronaut. STS-100 was one of several trips into space for the Ontario-born test pilot, space explorer, and ISS commander. So many milestones for Chris, among them the first Canadian to walk in space and the only Canadian ever to command a spaceship. And now, as a best-selling author, with his feet firmly planted on terra firma, his first endeavor at writing fiction, a thriller, in fact, The Apollo Murders. Chris Hadfield joins us now in conversation. Welcome. Hey, thank you, Anna. It's a delight to be talking to you again. So what crossed your mind when you thought, I can write a thriller, I can write fiction, I'm going to call it The Apollo Murders? What were you thinking? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a big step for, when you listed my bio, it's kind of bizarre even to think that those things happen in my life, but obviously that doesn't lead linearly to becoming a, uh, a fiction author, but I've always loved writing since, since, uh, grade school. And, and I've always written at, at a low level for various things, but I was busy with my prime profession. But since I left the Canadian space agency back in 2013, um, as you mentioned, I, I've uh, written three other books, uh, all uh, not fiction. You know, one is sort of um, how to live uh, a better life, and, and then one is imagery from space, and one is a children's book on how not to be afraid and how to be inspired. But so much of what happens in life is storytelling. You know, how how did it happen? How did it feel? What did it mean to you? And a great way to tell that story, of course, is, is through characters and, and, and bringing historical things to life. And so I thought I'd give it a try. And it has to have intrigue and, and twists and plot turns to keep it interesting. And, and so I thought th- this is a fascinating time in history, and maybe I have the skills. And so for the past couple of years, uh, I've been working on this book. And I am so happy that uh, I have just this past week uh, handed the manuscript, well, virtually handed the manuscript to the publishers. So it's a big threshold in my life. So it's a killer thriller, and it's set in the 70s. The backdrop is the Cold War and the space race. You were just a teenager at that point. So why did you decide that that was the right time to set the stage for the Apollo murders? Well, just because so much was happening at that time, I said it in the spring of, well, uh, the main events happened in the spring of 1973. So that was the height of the Cold War, you know, the continued battle between the Soviet Union and the United States. And it was uh, just at the end of the um, Vietnam War. Uh, Nixon had been reelected, but the Watergate was just starting to break. Title IX had just come through. Uh, looking at uh, women's rights. Uh, It was the end of the race to the moon, right around then, the last Apollo missions. uh, Apollo 17 had gone just around Christmas at that time. The Soviets had put up one of their early space stations 
um, a secret spy space station that hardly anybody even knows about now. Um, and all of that was happening at the same time. So it just provided me a very rich uh, choice of, of storylines to choose from. And I, and I wove uh, a fictional story through being extremely careful to, to pay attention to all the facts so that even to me, the whole story is is completely credible. It's something that could have happened. Can you give us a quick synopsis of, I don't want to know how it ends, of course, but what's the story about? Uh, well, it's, it's about uh, people uh, at that time, of course. It's about a, uh, an Apollo crew um, going to the moon. And they're going to the moon for a different purpose than any of the other Apollo missions. And they all come from a different background, a thing called the Manned Orbiting Laboratory, where the U.S. had a military space station planned in the 1960s. So, and that, it, this is all reality. And so three military astronauts, and then at the same time, um, military cosmonauts on their military space station. And it's the crossover between how those, those two space missions interacted and then things that happened on the moon that uh, that will be a surprise. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, bringing the story back to Earth at the end. Um, and and it's uh, you know it's in the whole feel of of just an international intrigue spy kind of thriller. That's those are the type of stories that have always appealed to me. And and it, it allowed me to to tell the story from an astronaut's point of view of what all of those stages are like. And, and so for me, it was really joyful to be able to take all the facts and, and use my own experiences and everybody that I know to then turn it into a story that, that people will really, I think, get a feel for what it's like to fly in space. So your experience, the challenge as an astronaut in a tiny space module, time spent working in Russia, also piloting a Russian Soyuz, that's pretty important stuff when it comes to creating this novel. It's huge. I was NASA's director of operations in Russia. I lived about five years in Russia uh, working as an astronaut in at, at Star City, Sviosnogorodok, you know, the little place where Yuri Gagarin trained and, and then every, every cosmonaut since then. And and then I, I was down in Baikonur, Kazakhstan, where they launched for, for many launches and landings uh, out in the steppes of Kazakhstan where their, their ships bound back to Earth. And then on my third flight, I flew a Soyuz as the pilot of a Russian spaceship. So I learned to speak Russian and got to know their program pretty well. And, and so it, it put me in a very unusual position to write this book. Deep experience within the American program, having served as a NASA astronaut um, for 21 years as a Canadian, but, and then um, working with the Russians very closely. And I helped build the Russian space station Mir uh, back in 95 on my first flight. And, and then, uh, of course, helped build the International Station and, and, as you say, did Canada's first spacewalk. So so it, it gives me a huge privilege to be able to write and flesh out this fiction story with, with a, a deep personal background of fact. And, and I just want to say, Anne, um, I've been quite nervous uh, handing my manuscript to the publishers, you know, because they're now going to edit it just like they do with every book and try and make sure it's, you know, it does everything that's needed. And I have a publisher in the UK, one in Canada, and one in the United States, but two prime editors, one in England and one here in Toronto. And it's it's not even like a nervous father. I don't know what, but it's a very nerve-wracking thing to hand my baby over. But they've started reading it, and they're well into it now. And it's, it's a huge gush of relief for me because they love it. 
they're they're like holy cow yeah like this is great and so so i'm feeling extremely optimistic that other people will will like the story that i've told as well I can't believe that anything makes you nervous, the fact that you're handing over your manuscript. So let's talk about that. I want to go back in time. What is it like to listen to the countdown and to to, to take off, to launch? I mean, it must be a mix of so many emotions. It is. It's your whole life sort of funneled into one moment. And it's not just like, you know... Uh, the other maybe significant moments in your life, walking down the aisle, say, with, with the person that, that you're going to spend uh, the rest of your life with, or being in the delivery room for the birth of a child, or whatever, walking across a great, you know, there are, there are moments in your life that we make um, very special. But in this case, if you do it wrong, or if something happens, you die. Yeah. So there's not only the, the recognition that this is a really significant time in your life, but it's also an immensely dangerous one. And the only way that you're going to make through it is, is through intense concentration and years and years and years of preparation. Imagine when walking down the aisle to get married, if people were shooting at you the whole time <laughs> and, and, and you had to use your own skill to, to get there and actually make this thing happen. You know, so it adds a huge um, level of seriousness and, and personal stake to it. Um, and, and so you've got all that going on. But at the same time, you're just that little kid that wanted to fly in space that was inspired by, you know, Star Trek and, and Buck Rogers and, and Star Wars or whatever you watched when you were growing up. And so there's this very serious engineer test pilot aware of the danger. And there's this little excited kid running around with their hands over their head, jumping up and down because this is such an exciting day. And you've got to put all that together in your head and do the job right. And, and, and launch, even though it's the most dangerous part, it's just the door opening. It only takes eight and a half minutes from lying on your back in Florida, being put through all that pummeling power and shaking to now be floating weightless in space. It's a really important eight and a half minutes. You have to stay hugely focused, but the door that it opens on the other end to start to physically explore the rest of the universe, that, that, that's a magnificent threshold to step across and, and it makes the whole journey so infinitely worthwhile. When we come back, Chris Hadfield steps into space. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Is there someone you want to learn more about? Drop us a line. Info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer will be right back on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to In Conversation with Ann Romer on 1059 The Region. Chris Hadfield, I want to go back to how you felt at certain points in your space exploration. You've described things so beautifully, by the way. I can tell you're a great writer. I know that. So your first spacewalk, can you put into words so we can understand in some way what that was like for you? And I dreamed about walking in space since I saw the first uh, couple people uh, walk on the moon, Neil and Buzz, when I was just about to turn 10 in the summer of, of 69. And uh, so I'd been dreaming about it. But when the actual day comes, imagine if you'd woken up this morning realizing that today's the day you're going to walk in space. And, and 
you know, when you went to the bathroom, you realize, oh, I really need to go to the bathroom well because I'm going to be in a spacesuit. And then you have to think about what you're going to eat and drink. And then you start building this spacesuit around your body. And that takes hours. And finally, you're locked in this tiny little airlock. And, and the lights are dark and they suck all the air out of it. And now you're floating weightless in a vacuum of space. And you open up the hatch. You reach out with both hands and you pull yourself physically out into the universe. The transition is, is not just startling, it's stupefying because the, the, your previous existence, even though it technically prepared you, it does nothing to get you ready for the magnificence of being alone out in the cosmos and having the world silent and enormous and gorgeous, omnipresently turning next to you and, and the three-dimensional infinity of the blackness of space in all other directions. And you're there. You're in the middle of it. You're, you're, your skills and your abilities and your, your tenacity um, have gotten you to that place. And so I was overwhelmed by it. I, it was just so much more beautiful and impactful than I expected. I had lots of stuff to do, but an absolutely magnificent and, and formative moment in my life. And where did you go in order to find what you needed to get to work? You were there for a purpose, and you were spacewalking for a reason. How did you How did you manage to put all of what you've just said back into your heart and soul and get down to work? Well, it's a really distracting place to work, and I had to like ignore the world and ignore the universe and pay attention to my uh, my knitting there. And uh, all of I have a bunch of tools strapped to my chest, so a bunch of ready stuff. And then you have to go to various lockers around the payload bay of the shuttle and then up onto the space station where we, you know, just like anybody going to work, you got to go grab all the tools you need and then get out to the workplace. If you lose your grip, then you float off and die. So you always have to be really careful like a like a telephone uh, line worker or something that you're always tethered in case you, you slip or, or a rock climber or something. Um, but to me, it sort of felt like a combination of uh, of rock climbing or mountain climbing and, um, and, and scuba diving and small engine repair all at the same time. But while, while you're wearing a, a snowmobile suit and hockey gloves, you know, you're trying to make all those things elegantly happen. And, but I'd practiced for years. I had actually helped invent that spacewalk and, and worked on it for four years, hundreds and hundreds of hours underwater in our best simulator because we were building Canadarm2 onto the space station. You get one try. So, uh, so we wanted to get it right. And, uh, and even though I had lots of problems during the walk and things not working right and I got contamination in both my eyes and was blinded for a half hour, even with all of those obstacles, uh, we got the whole thing done. And Canadarm2 has been building and, and maintaining the space station ever since. Chris Hadfield, can I tell you something? You are one of the most down-to-earth people that I've ever spoken with, really, truly. I want to talk to you about the pride you felt as the first Canadian commander of the ISS. You know, not many of us know what the job is. What does it entail? Well, fundamentally, you're responsible for the world's spaceship and the lives inside. So that's a big responsibility. Uh, Fifteen countries, uh, decades of work, tens of thousands of workers, uh, billions of dollars, collective, you know, hundred billion dollars, I guess, collectively between all the countries and all that time. And you are, are the, the commander. 
you know. So, so you really have to take that seriously. And then you've got normally uh, five other lives there where um, mistakes are, are deadly. So there's all of that. You're running about 200 experiments. So there's a big scientific import to what's happening. You're exploring how the universe is made and what, how the world really behaves because we go around it every 90 minutes. A wonderful place to understand the world. And then fundamental experiments. So you've got all that happening. And every single day, you're pulled by all the mission controls around the world, the one in Montreal, the one in Houston, one in Moscow, the one in Munich, and the one in Tokyo. And everyone's telling you what to do, and, and you need to balance it all. And so it's 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 huge amount of work. But they give you some time to sleep. And, and I would steal an hour or two of sleep every night because I figured I'd sleep when I got back six months later. And that's when I would do the things that were just for me, you know, to, to write music and, and to to keep track of what was happening for myself and to talk to family and take pictures out the window because I didn't want to just be an automaton. I didn't want to miss this most human of experiences. I needed to do the job right, but at the same time, I, uh, I, I needed to truly make the most of this rare moment, rare six months in my life. Chris, how important was family through all of this? I've been so lucky. I grew up with a a demanding and supportive family. Uh, I think that's a good combination. My parents expected a lot of me and gave me great opportunity. And it's the same with my wife. We met in high school and we were in a high school play together and she has very high aspirations. Her name's Helena. She's currently uh, during COVID doing her fourth university degree. She's had multiple professions over the years, a real wide range of interests. We've always challenged and supported each other through our whole lives. We have three kids um, we have one granddaughter, and so I think uh, friends and, and especially family are very important. And there's, everybody's imperfect. You know, my, my parents have flaws. My, I have huge flaws. My, you have to recognize that everybody does things wrong often, but at the same time, there's a lot of right things happening. And, and I've always my role in amongst that to be a contributing family member to try and do the things that are important to me and to try and enable all the other members of my family to, to reach the peak of their own desires and capabilities as well. And it's what we're all still doing today. Boy, I hope they hear this interview because you just spoke so glowingly about all of them and, and humbly about yourself and, and you're a remarkable human being. Life back here on Earth, how is your career in space helping you cope with the COVID-19 restrictions, how do you sort of assemble what you need to do today based on what you did as a space explorer? Well, I spent uh, 35 years as a public servant, working as a, as a um, fighter pilot. A fight in, 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 I was intercepting Soviet bombers during the Cold War off the coast of Newfoundland, and then as a test pilot, and then uh, 21 years as an astronaut. And most of that time, uh, I was deployed somewhere away from my family and often living in extremely uh, uncomfortable and separate and often very dangerous circumstances. So that's wonderful preparation for COVID, actually. <laughs> and I, so for me, it, it's just been sort of uh, an ability to apply the lessons that I've learned through all the other things that I've done in my life and just do them on a daily basis here. 
Uh, I know it, for a, a lot of folks, this is a huge departure from the lives that they've led and very disruptive and very difficult to deal with financially and, and emotionally and, and organizationally and, and, you know, how do you make this fit? And, and so I, I've actually been speaking to people all around the planet. I work with companies all around the world. I've been lecturing about it, um, making videos about it, talking about it. Uh, how, what are some of the coping mechanisms? How do you deal with all this? Recognizing that at some point we're going to land this spaceship and the world will have changed, we will have changed, but we're, the vast majority of us are going to come out the other side of this. And how we do that is going to define the rest of our lives. And so it, that's one of the kind of methodologies I learned through my career and something that's been very helpful in dealing with, with this pandemic and, and you know the remaining parts of it and how it's affecting society and us individually. Chris, would you like to go back into space at some point? I know... John Glenn did. He was much older than you are today. But is it something that is front of mind, back of mind? Well, I'd love to, Anne, uh, uh, if you're offering. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I work with um, SpaceX, who is building uh, human-rated vehicles. I, I work with Virgin Galactic, who is building uh, human-rated space vehicles. And so the opportunity may be there. Um, but I've been incredibly fortunate. Not, not only have I flown in space, but I have flown the vehicles into space. I've been part of the crew that made them operate. Um, and, and, and those are some of the most capable vehicles ever built to have flown the space shuttle twice as part of the flight deck crew. I mean, I wasn't the commander, but I was part of the four people flying it. So, um, and, and they took a decade of work basically for each flight, which, which is a huge amount of the fun. You know, if, if you just, and if a helicopter pulled up in front of your place right now, mm-hmm. plucked you off the ground and set you on the top of Mount Everest for 10 minutes and then brought you back again, yes, you would have been to the top of Mount Everest, but you would have missed most of the experience of climbing Everest. Mm-hmm. And I have sort of climbed Everest in space flight three times. So just to go for a ride, yeah, I wouldn't turn it down. But to me, that it's the grand adventure of it and the human challenge of it and the things that you discover uh, about the world, but also about yourself on the way. That, that's the part I really cherish the most and what drives my decisions now. It's part of the reason I wrote this book is to really challenge myself and discover and explain it to myself. But yeah, if I get a chance to fly in space again, sure, absolutely. I'll oh, I love it. to hear that. I love to hear that. So the Apollo murders. Why is it important, do you think, that we have an edge-of-your-seat work of fiction through this pandemic, something to dive into and forget about what's going on in reality? Art is absolutely essential for each of us. And we may not think about it, but try and go through a day without any artistic appreciation or explanation, without music or without uh, beautiful colors or or something that someone has built in, a, in an appealing way or in a thoughtful way or reading or poetry or whatever it is, we, we surround ourselves with it because we need it. And it helps explain the world to us. And, and, and to me, to be able to take one of the great human heroic adventures this far of starting to explore the rest of the universe, I can explain it a lot of ways. But to be able to tell it as a gripping story, where you can really transport yourself into each of the characters, 
uh, that I put into the book, where you can really get a feel for what this was like for them and what did it feel like to, to fly this rocket ship or to step out onto the dusty surface of the moon. There are a lot of ways to try and tell that story. But to me, to build an entire uh, storyline that has, has twists and turns where you're just dying to turn the page and find out what happened next and come away from it really feeling not only like it was exciting, but that you, you now have a closer understanding to what it was truly like for everybody in it. And, and over half the characters in the book are real people because it's historical fiction. It, all these people actually existed. Well, I, for one, can't wait to read your fictional baby. It's being launched, if you will, in October. How do I find a way to order the book now? Uh, it's available everywhere, of course. Uh, if you go to chrishadfield.ca uh, slash books, chrishadfield.ca slash books, no matter where you are in Canada or even around the world, it'll just show you uh, various ways you can get it, you know, in print or or in digitally or uh, an audio version of the book. We're still choosing who's going to read the book. Um, so uh, I'm not sure who's going to do the audio version yet. But uh, yeah, so just chrishadfield.ca slash books. And um, I, I really hope people enjoy it. I'm, I'm really heartened by the, the few pre-readers I've had so, so far. Some of them pretty, pretty hard judges, you know, and, and they're really enjoying the way the story is told and also what the story tells. So I hope people enjoy the book. I've had a lot of fun putting it together. By the way, it's my opinion that you should be the one to record the book, frankly. Your voice and your, <laughs> you know exactly the intonation and what's necessary to really bring it to life. Chris Hadfield, such a pleasure getting to know you just a little bit more. You are a gifted, extraordinary human being, and thank you for being you. Uh, that's lovely of you to say, and thank you very much. It's a pleasure to speak with you uh, every single time we've met. So uh, I wish you well, I wish you health, and, uh, and I hope you enjoy the book. We leave you now with a bit of Chris Hadfield's version of David Bowie's Space Oddity. Follow In Conversation with Ann Romer on Twitter at 1059 The Region. This is 1059 The Region.